0: Let's come to the Word of God this morning. I'd like to ask you to please open with me to our text, which is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. And we're taking a brief uh, break this morning from our sermon series, looking at uh, um, 1 Kings and Elijah, the prophet Elijah, and uh, Ahab, King Ahab, and the, um conflict between those two and instead we're going to take a look uh, here at this passage and remind ourselves of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11 and this is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth back then as well as to us as believers in Jesus Christ today. He writes, Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed, and this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, there are certain jobs in Classis, Wisconsin that no one wants to do. Uh, For those of you who aren't nerds about Christian Reformed Church polity like I am, uh, in the CRC, we view the local church council as the uh, ultimate seat of authority in our denomination. What that means is that CRC churches in our tradition and in our denomination are primarily council-led churches. We're not pastor-led churches, meaning that Peter and I can't just decide whatever we think is best or whatever we want to do, and then the church has to do that. Nor are we a representative democracy, contrary to what it's easy for us to think. We don't elect office bearers to our church, elders and deacons, like we're taking nominations for. We don't elect office bearers to represent us. Instead, we elect our office bearers to represent Christ. And so that's where the authority of the church starts in the CRC, with the local council of elders and deacons. But sometimes there are issues that are bigger than just one congregation can handle. And so that's why twice a year we send delegates to Classis, which is the group of local churches here in our region, Classis, Wisconsin. We meet in September and February to take care of whatever business or issues indi- individual congregations can't take care of on their own. And one of those issues is making sure that those who fill our pulpits in our churches on different Sundays to preach the Word of God are up to the task. The way that it works is that anyone who wants to uh, come in and preach in a CRC church has to be examined um, in a classes meeting in order to make sure that they're qualified to preach. And uh, there's a number of different aspects to that exam. There's a biblical portion uh, where you get quizzed on scripture. There's a theological portion where you get quizzed on theology a pastoral care portion and then a sermon evaluation and I actually had all of that seven and a half years ago at our September 2013 classes meeting where I sat up front and was quizzed for two and a half hours by the other members of classes on just about everything that you could think of from scripture to theology to my view of what it means to be a pastor and my approach to ministry and all of that and as part of that a few people evaluated my preaching they were actually here the first Sunday that I ever preached in our church. They actually sat right back over there where the Yitris are. And uh, then after the service, they met with me and told me how, I, how they thought I did and then gave a report to Classes during my examination. And that's the job that no one else seems to want to do in Classis, Wisconsin. Serve as a sermon evaluator for a candidate uh, who's going to be examined before Classes. None of the other pastors in Classes seem to like it. Um, And there's good reason for that. After all, you have to take a Sunday away from your own congregation, you have to find pulpit supplies, somebody else to come in and lead worship in your place, then you have to drive off in a couple of hours to another CRC church somewhere else in the state, and then listen to a sermon that may or may not be all that good. And then you have to write a report. So no one really seems to enjoy that job. Not a lot of people like to be sermon evaluators in our classes. But I do. And so as a result, I've sort of become the unofficial sermon evaluator in Classes, Wisconsin. I don't know what they're going to do without me anymore. Um, you see, when people in classes find out that you like doing something that no one else does, you get to do it every time. So for the last three or four years, I think I've evaluated the preaching of every candidate who's come before Classes, Wisconsin. Um, there's always two evaluators, but I'm always one of them. Now as a sermon evaluator, part of your responsibility includes meeting with or at the very least talking to the person who you're going to evaluate before you hear them preach. Often the class assigns the text that the candidate is going to preach on. And so um, you're supposed to read through that text and then talk it over with the candidate and kind of tell them some of the things that maybe you want to hear them touch on from that passage. Um, kind of explain to them your expectations for what makes a good sermon and then anything else that you think might be helpful for them as they prepare. One thing I always tell those I'm going to evaluate is this. I want to hear the gospel. I want to hear the gospel. I say to them, look, you might have some really great things to say about this text. Um, And it might be really good stuff. It might even change the way that I think about certain things. But if I don't hear the gospel, then I can't give you a good sermon evaluation. Because it's not really a Christian sermon, then. So, no matter what else you say, at the very least, I have to hear that. I have to hear the gospel. Part of why that's so important to me, making sure that a Christian sermon actually includes the gospel, is because it took a long time, a frighteningly long time, actually, in my own life for me to understand what the gospel actually was. You see, I've been a Christian my whole life. I think like many of us here, I was born into a Christian family. My parents raised me and my sister is Christians. We attended church every week, twice a week, actually. I went to Christian schools. In fact, I never got away from them. I went to Christian grade school, Christian middle school, Christian high school, Christian college. Actually, they call it university now, but anyway, Calvin College changed their name. Then seminary, I never got away from Christian education. All my life I've been in Christian schools. Um, I've been part of countless Bible studies, prayer groups, and ministry opportunities. I even majored in religion back when I was at Calvin. And yet the sad thing is that for most of my life, despite all of that, despite my Christian upbringing, despite my Christian formation, despite my education, I didn't really know what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually was. Instead, for most of my younger years, I believed a Christian version of what's called legalism. It's actually right there in the name, but legalism has to do with some kind of law. It's a law that tells you all the things that are legal or okay for you to do and all the things that aren't. And then the way that legalism works is that you get sort of points or uh, kudos or props for all the things you do that are good but then you get some of those points or kudos deducted for anything you do that's wrong. So for instance, according to the Christian version of legalism, you get points for things like telling the truth, helping the poor, going to church, praying, doing your devotions, fighting for justice, and so on and so forth. But you get some of those points deducted whenever you do anything that you're not supposed to do, whenever you sin or mess up, when you do things like cuss or steal cheat, lie, or God forbid, any of the quote-unquote bigger sins. And the whole goal with this legalistic version of Christianity is to end up with enough points at the end of your life that you get whatever it is that you want from God. For me as a kid, that was to go to heaven. The idea of potentially going to hell someday terrified me. And so I always wanted to make sure as a kid that I was being good enough so that someday God would let me into heaven when I died. For other people, it's different, though. For instance, there's a whole segment of American Christians who believe a version of, of legalism that says that if you're good enough for God, he'll give you all the health, wealth, and prosperity you can possibly imagine. That's the sort of false gospel that people like Joel Osteen, Paula White, Jim Baker, and others peddle. The social gospel is another one. That's a more left-wing version of Christian legalism that says everyone needs to pursue these certain social justice causes, and then they just kind of fill in the blank with whatever ones are their favorites. And if you don't, then you're not a real Christian, and so on and so forth. At its most basic, what legalism says is that you need to earn God's love and acceptance. If you're good, If you stick to the rules, whatever those rules are, according to the version of legalism you're following, and you live well enough, then God will love and accept you and give you salvation. And if you don't, then He won't. And that's more or less the version of Christianity that I believed for the first 22 or so years of my life. And I'm unfortunately not alone in that either. At least from what I can tell, there are a lot of Christians in all different churches and traditions who believe some form of Christian legalism as well. The only problem is that it's not the gospel. It's not the good news that Jesus Christ came to offer us, and it can't save us either. Neither could the version of the faith that some of the Corinthians had apparently slipped into believing To be honest, the Apostle Paul's letters to the Corinthians are two of his tougher letters. What I mean by that is that some of Paul's letters are are warmer in their tone. They're more encouraging. They're easier to read. They're more diplomatic. For instance, Paul's letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, even to the Thessalonians, they all have a gentler touch to them. Paul is more gracious with some of those other early Christian communities. And even when he's addressing problems in those churches, you can tell that he's doing so more from a place of concerned care for them than frustration or anger. But not so with this letter or its sequel, 2 Corinthians. These letters are a bit rougher around the edges. And Paul's handling of the Christians in Corinth is more direct. He minces his words less and he pulls fewer punches. And the correction that he does in this letter and the next one often seem to come more from a place of exasperation than gentle redirection. And we see that in our text for this morning, too. We don't know all the details, but, and scholars kind of disagree on what was going on in Corinth, but at a bare minimum, the Corinthians seem to have been a bit confused about the Christian belief in the resurrection. They don't seem to have been confused about Jesus' resurrection. They still seem to believe that, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Instead, it seems like they were confused about their resurrection and the idea that someday Christians who put their faith in Jesus would be raised just like he was to new life. Apparently, there was an idea going around the Corinthian church that, yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be raised. And so Paul responds to that idea here in our text in in two main ways. First, at the beginning of this passage, he says, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me me remind you of the gospel I preached to you and the gospel that you yourselves believed. Let Let me remind you of that gospel because it's that gospel that saves you. Otherwise, everything you've believed about Jesus, about God, and even about yourselves, it's all in vain. And then Paul proceeds to quote for the Corinthians one of the early Christian creeds. You see, the same way that we have creeds in the church today, and we just actually recited one, the Apostles' Creed, um, as part of, uh, in response to the professions of faith this morning, um, the same way that we have creeds like those today, and we use those creeds to express what we believe as Christians, the early church also had creeds. To help explain what they believed. And Paul actually quotes one of them here in our text in verses 3 through 5. He writes, For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance. And then here's the creed that he's quoting. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then in the verses right after this, Paul actually expands on the creed a little bit and he gives a a little bit more um, evidence of Christ having appeared to others and he mentions some of the other resurrection appearances that Jesus made. But in essence, what he's saying to the Corinthians is this is the gospel. This is the good news that you believed about Jesus Christ. Christ died for your sins. He was buried, but he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay buried. Instead, he was raised to new life on the third day. And he even appeared to people. They saw him. They know it's real. And this was all according to Scripture. It was all according to God's plan. And it was all for you. In other words, what Paul is trying to do here is reaffirm the Corinthians' belief in the resurrection, from their belief in the other parts of the gospel. In essence, what Paul is saying is you believe all those other parts of the gospel, right? Then believe this part too. Christ was raised to new life, he was resurrected, and as his people, you will be as well. That new life that Christ secured in his victory over death is new life for us as those who put our faith in him also. And then Paul actually uses himself as an example of that. This is the second thing that Paul says to the Corinthians in response to their waffling about the resurrection. He says, you have new life in Christ, and if you don't believe me, look at me. Look at my life. I'm exhibit A of the kind of new life that Christ offers. And then in verses 9 through 10, Paul tells them why. He writes, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all the rest of them. He's referring to the other apostles here. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What Paul is saying here is that his life perfectly demonstrates How God's grace can bring about new life in someone. After all, Paul wasn't always a Christian. In fact, for a while, he was the exact opposite of a Christian. He was a militant Jewish rabbi who was vehemently opposed to the early church, and he thought that they were basically heretics within Judaism, and he was actively persecuting and imprisoning as many of the early Christians as he could find. But then one day, it all changed. On the road to Damascus, where Paul was planning to continue his persecution of the church, the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. He stopped Paul in his tracks, and that encounter transformed Paul's life. And he went from someone who was persecuting the church and from a murderous opponent of the early Christians to one of its biggest evangelists and missionaries, traveling the known world at the time, trying to convince as many people as possible to put their faith in Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying here is our resurrected life in Jesus doesn't just start when we die. It actually starts now. That's how we know that someday we'll be physically and bodily resurrected like Jesus was. That's our resurrection guarantee, if you will. We can trust that someday our bodies will be resurrected because Christ has already spiritually resurrected us as his people and Paul uses his own life as an example of that as he says in verse 10 God's grace to me was not without effect instead it had a lasting impact on him and God's grace still has an impact today it's not without effect on us either instead the power of the gospel is still alive and well for us as Christians still today So what is that gospel? What is this good news that we believe about Jesus Christ? What is this message of salvation that Paul worked so hard to convince not only the Corinthians of, but countless others? What is this gospel message that we ourselves believe? Well, here, towards the end of my last sermon at BCRC, I'd I'd like for us just to walk through that gospel message in a couple different ways this morning. What is the gospel? First, it's the story of the world. That might sound really big, but I can summarize it pretty quickly for you in a way I'm sure that many of you have heard before. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. As simple as it sounds, that's the story of the world. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. First, creation. God made this world good. He made it abundant, full of flourishing, just the way it was supposed to be. Because of our sin, though, it's obviously not that way anymore, and that's the second piece to this story, the fall. The world has been warped and distorted by our fall into sin and has become a place of scarcity, oppression, violence, and evil, not at all the way that God intended it to be. And yet God didn't give up on it. He didn't give up on us. Instead, he made a promise, a promise to send us a Savior, a Deliverer, a Redeemer, someone who could do what we couldn't and reverse the downward spiral of our sin and brokenness. And so God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, and he came and lived among us. He taught us and fellowshiped with us. He showed us what it looks like to have the kind of relationship with God that we were created to have. And then as we heard in that early Christian creed that Paul quotes in this text, Christ died for us. He was buried. On the third day, though, he rose and his resurrection, new life is a guarantee of the new life that God has created in all of us, too. It's a guarantee that we will someday live in God's presence forever in his recreated and renewed world just like he meant it to be in the beginning. And that's the final piece to this gospel story. New creation. Through Christ, God not only restored us as his people, but he's actually restoring his entire world too. And someday this creation will no longer be the broken, fallen one that we see around us. Instead, it too will be new just like us, and we will dwell with our God forever. Now there's a few things that I like about, focus, or about uh, describing the gospel story this way. First, I like that this framework tells us both how the story begins and the story ends. As biblical theologian N.T. Wright has pointed out, when the only part of the gospel that we share with people is about Jesus' death. Christ died for our sins. When that's the only part of the gospel that we share, we leave out a whole bunch of the rest of the story. Okay? It leaves out the part that the Corinthians actually were leaving out in their own faith, the part about Jesus' resurrection, but it also leaves out how the whole thing started with God's good creation, and it leaves out how the whole thing's going to end with that creation renewed and restored. And that brings up the second piece that I like about this gospel framework, And that's that it makes clear that the gospel is a story that ends just like it began. It comes full circle. And what that says to me is that our God is a faithful God. Because after we fell into sin, it's not like God looked at this world and said, well, that's not worth redeeming. Those people aren't worth redeeming. And then just chucked it over his shoulder into the wastebasket of history. Instead, when we talk about the gospel this way, We see that God is a faithful God who is still committed to his world, still committed to this creation that he made, and still committed to us. And he's going to bring it all to redemption. Which brings me to the third reason why I like explaining the gospel this way. And that's that it is by far the most hopeful outlook on life, the world, and ourselves as human beings that I have ever come across. If all of what we believe as Christians is true, if God is real, he created this world good, our sin messed it up, but God has redeemed and renewed it through Jesus Christ and will one day bring that process to completion, if all of that is true, and I believe that it is, then there is nothing more hopeful or beautiful for us to put our faith in as human beings. It's simply the best news That you could ever possibly hear. It truly is gospel. But so is this. One of my pastors in Grand Rapids, Pastor Dave Beelan, used to summarize the gospel this way. He used to say in his sermons, You're a whole lot worse than you think you are, and a whole lot more loved than you could ever imagine. You're a whole lot worse than you think you are, and a whole lot more loved than you could ever imagine. You see, if creation, fall, redemption, and new creation is sort of the cosmic version of the gospel, it's the hope of salvation and redemption for the world, then Pastor Dave's summary is a nice picture of the personal hope that we have as a result of that gospel. You, all of you, and me, and everyone else in the world, we're all a whole lot worse than we think we are. And yet we are also more loved, loved by God, than we could ever imagine. That's the hope that the gospel holds out for all of us individually. And it's a hope that directly opposes the sort of legalism that I talked about earlier and the sort of legalism that I grew up believing. You see, we don't have to earn that love from God. In fact, it's not something that we even can earn, even if we wanted to, even if we tried. As sinful people, we are not capable of earning God's love. There's no amount of good that we can offer God to earn his favor. Legalism is a sham. It's an endless rat race that will burn us out as we try desperately and fruitlessly and futilely to make up for our sin and rebellion. God's love simply isn't for purchase from us, it's too costly. And so God himself paid that cost. He took that cost on himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and now he gives us that love free of charge. The way I like to say this is that as Christians, we don't live good lives so that God will love and accept us. Instead, we live good lives as Christians because God already does love and accept us. And knowing the difference between those two things makes all the difference in the world it makes all the difference in our lives too you see we do have a a part to play in our faith we have a response to God's grace we can't earn his love that much is hopefully clear but we can and should respond to the love of our God like Paul after his Damascus road encounter with Christ the gospel should transform us it should change us In theological terms, it should sanctify us. It should make it so that we'll never be able to be the same again. The way I like to say this is that God loves you just as you are, but he also loves you too much to leave you that way. God loves you just the way that you are, but he also loves us too much to leave us that way. And that's the reason... That's the reason why I feel so strongly about making sure that the gospel is preached and preached well. That's why I end every sermon with the gospel. You've probably noticed this over the years. I mean, I've been doing it for seven years, right? We come towards the end of the sermon and and almost every time I'll say something like, and that brings us to the gospel. This is why hearing the gospel is a non-negotiable when it comes to good preaching. Because it is truly the most freeing, most liberating, most transformative thing in the world. Nothing compares to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can hold a candle to it. Nothing even comes close. You see, there are so many other gospels out there that masquerade for our attention as Christian believers. Okay? They tell us that they'll save us in this way or that. They tell us that they can offer us what we need, what we want, what we desire. They tell us that they and they alone can make us truly happy, satisfied, and fulfilled. There are other religious gospels from other faith traditions. There are political gospels. There are sexual gospels. There are even gospels of things that would otherwise seem good. But if and when they ever encroach on this one, if and when they ever blur the lines, And make themselves seem like the true gospel, they have gone too far and revealed themselves to be nothing more than a false gospel. Because only this one, only the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly a gospel worth believing. You see, ultimately every other gospel message tells us what we need to do. This is how you work your way up to God. This is how you achieve your dreams. This is what you need to do to finally have the utopia that you want to exist in. Just follow the steps and you can have whatever it is that you want. That's what every other gospel tells us. The gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is kind of a good litmus test for the gospel message, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only one that tells us not what we need to do, but what God has already done for us through Jesus Christ rather than having us work our way up to his level he came down to ours in the person of Jesus Christ he set us free from all our desperate attempts to earn his favor and he restored us to be the people that he created us to be and the relationship with him that he meant us to have that's the true gospel and that's the one that Paul preached so long ago, and it's the one that we still need to hear today. In fact, it's the one that we need to hear every time that we step into a place like this. I have a friend who's told a st- who tells a story about that, and I've told this story before, but it's been seven and a half years. I've told every one of my stories before. Um, and it's a good one, so I'm going to tell it again. But like me, my friend is a young pastor, and like me, he sometimes gets feedback on his sermons. And one of his regular sermon evaluators is an older woman in the congregation he serves. And she can't attend worship anymore because of health issues and she lives in a retirement home. But she listens to his sermons every week. And then whenever he's able to visit with her, she gives him her feedback. And one time she said to him, I think I've, I think I've figured it out. And he said, figured what out? Your sermons, she said. I figured them out. They're all the same. Oh, my friend said, she said, yeah, they're all the same. All you do is preach the gospel every week. But then before my friend could say anything else, she said, but that's okay. Because it turns out that's exactly what I need to hear every single week. So do I. And so do you. and So do all of us. And I hope, according to my own criteria for a good sermon, that's what you've heard today. And I hope it's also what you've heard throughout my ministry here these last seven years. Believe that gospel. For as Paul so perfectly puts it, it's by that gospel that we are saved. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. It's good news that has changed changed and transformed our world. It's the good news that has changed and transformed us. And it's the good news that you have called us to be bearers and witnesses of. Help us to take that good news and share it with the rest of this world for it is our light and our hope. And we pray this all in the name of the one who has made that gospel good news possible our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.